0: Lord, I thank you that that you didn't simply give us a book to obey. Lord, I thank you that you instead, that you are the word of life. Lord, it is you that gives us life and that is our life. It is Your grace that's not just a song that we sing about or a concept that we try to define and explain in theological ways. Lord, the grace is a reality of you. And Lord, your grace being poured out upon us and given to us that we we can see you at work around us and in us. Such a grace Lord, I thank you for your activity. I thank you that in this room, at this very moment, there are about a thousand people that are saying thank you for something very specific. Lord, you can love us all at the same time, and you do. You can walk with us all at the same time, and you do. And we, your sons and daughters, just want to say thank you. Lord, I even want to say thank you for the things that was your grace that we didn't see, that we didn't recognize, and it didn't keep you from doing that, because it's who you are. Lord, open our eyes to be able to see you, to know you, and to thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And You may be seated. Isn't it kind of an incredible thought of that the graces of him that I can think about and see and know are minute compared to the amount of graces he's actually displayed? How many I miss as he constantly is a God of grace. Listen, we're, we're digging in today in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. But before we do that, I was... I was looking at my calendar, and um, you know how when you do a, a, com- a calendar on your phone or your computer, you can choose what holidays to include in your calendar? And I was amazed at how many crazy holidays that our nation declares to be worthy of a day unto its own. All right, let me give you a few of them. One of them is January the 8th. I kind of appreciate this, it's National Clean Your Desks Day <laughs> market. Now, January 23rd, I, anybody's birthday on January 23rd? I hope not, because this is not a day that you want It is National Measure Your Feet Day. When, when do, how do I not know how big my feet are? I buy shoes all the time. Okay, um, January 29th, National Bubble Wrap Appreciation Day. I could go on and on because that's just a couple of them in the month of January. But when we move to February, there is one that actually brings about something good. It's called National Random Acts of Kindness Day. So on February 17th, I plan on being behind you at coffee shops. I plan on being behind you at the lunch as well that you can, I can be the recipient of your kindness on that day some were slow to get that. That was good though. <laughs> At least we're all got it. Unlike us, Jesus, listen, Jesus lives a life of perfect compassion displayed, perfect grace displayed to us. Jesus never has done a simple random act of kindness in his whole life. He walked every day in obedience to the desires of God his father while on this earth. John 5:19 tells us that and helps us to understand that a little bit more clearly. So Jesus said to them, Truly truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So, as we continue to journey through this incredible gospel of Mark, we need to have in the back of our minds that there is not one story, not one miracle, not one moment inside of this book that is random. Everything is intentional, and intentional from God the Father's heart. So, last Sunday we studied the intentional moment of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and today, We're looking at the moment that Jesus walks on the water, the Sea of Galilee. It's important for us to understand that these two miracles, we often like to, and we fall in the ditch of compartmentalizing miracles, right? And I was just learning this week, when I do that, you know what the downside of that is? Well, there's lots, but the real downside is I place myself in the miracle, But when I pull out just a little bit more, I start to see the real story behind the miracle. And so I'm happy to tell you, maybe something you didn't know and something that continues to overwhelm me, is that the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee is all inside of a 24-hour period. It's one day. And it's not just any day, as we've already said, Jesus didn't do random things. It's an intentional day. And the book of John helps us to understand that this, these two miracles, this 24-hour period, is happening at the time of Passover. So that really helps us to understand context. It helps us to understand both miracles as they relate to one another in a new and a powerful way. So with that understanding, let's read Mark 6, verse 45 through 56. Why don't we do this? Why don't you stand as we read God's word this morning? Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, While he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for all they saw, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. May God bless his word. You may be seated. That first verse, Mark six forty-five, starts with a very familiar word for us inside of the book of Mark, and it's that word, immediately. That's what ties these together for the reader, including us, so we understand that these are connected events. But what follows immediately is something that's kind of strange. And that is that immediately after this miracle of feeding 5,000 plus people, because there was many more than there, than that, after he does this, he makes his disciples get into a boat they don't want to be in. And he makes all these newly fed people leave immediately. Okay, in the strangest of ways, when I read that, it reminded me of a Thanksgiving that I had. I know. Go to my mom's house in Mobile, Alabama. My brothers come, all their families. It's always just an awesome time when we're all in the same house. It's very rare that we're able to do that with our ever-growing families able to celebrate together, um, together. My mom obviously gets very excited when that occurs. This was a Thanksgiving a couple of years ago, but what you need to understand about my mom is you can describe her in many ways. She's godly, she's kind, she's an incredible mom, all those things. But there's another part of my mom that is a huge characteristic, and that is she is not a procrastinator. Never has been, never will be. It took it to new heights and levels at this Thanksgiving meal, though. So we're all around the table. We've had this incredible meal. In fact, mom has probably had that meal. Anything that could have been made in advance and frozen was made in advance and frozen. My mom is not a procrastinator. So we get at the table. We have this incredible meal um, my mom brings the dessert to the table. My youngest brother, Kevin, gets up. He had to go use the restroom. He leaves. We are eating. We are finishing the dessert, enjoying it. And then bef- my mom also left the table. And as we were finishing like the last bite of this delicious dessert, my mom comes to the table. While we are still in conversation, laughing, telling stories, all that stuff... The last bite has not hit my lips before my mom, who is not the procrastinator, comes to the table, removes all of the Thanksgiving decorations, replaces them with Christmas decorations. Amen. My, amen. No, no man. Listen, it happened right before our eyes. My brother, Amy Fuller, you, are you, you're resonating with me. Um, My brother comes back to the table, has no idea what has happened. My brother comes back to the table and sees that we are now in a new occasion. He looks at the table and he pauses. And then he looks up and he says, no one go to the bathroom or it will be Easter. In the same way, but more eternally significant, Jesus does that. This big moment of feeding 5,000 has just happened. And he changes the occasion on them. He makes the crowd leave. He separates the disciples and says, go get in a boat and start rowing. Why? The book of Mark does not tell us, but the book of John does tell us. So it says in the book of John, John chapter 6 verse 14 says this, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, and that is specifically about that feeding of the 5,000, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Remember, this is the time of Passover. Passover. Everything that the feeding of the 5,000 did echoed Passover. It echoed Moses. It was inside that occasion. I can just hear the buzz among those 5,000-plus people and maybe even the disciples themselves. As they experienced this miracle firsthand, they might have said, It is Passover, and God has given us the promised prophet just like he gave us Moses. They might have thought, Moses led our people out of Egypt's captivity? Surely this Jesus will lead us out from under Rome's rule. This brings us to the first belief statement this morning. Jesus knows our heart and he prays for us. See, Jesus knew the people's heart. He also knew that he needed to separate his disciples from that heart. So they wouldn't be influenced by their plans of anarchy. These same people determined to force Jesus to be king will be found waiting after this walking on the water miracle is happening. They are waiting. They've walked around the Sea of Galilee and they are waiting on the shore for him in a growing number and intensity. Let's fast forward to the end of the miracle of walking on water that we're going to talk about today. And look up what it says about the people They are still the same. Mark 6, verse 54. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately, immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Does that bring back a memory for you? And as many as touched it were made well. So now does it make sense why Jesus did what he did? He compelled the disciples to get in the boat. He pushed the crowd away back to their homes. But they didn't go home. They just went around the sea. Because he knew the hearts. He knew he had to protect those disciples from a place they could not stand against just yet. Those people wanted Jesus to become a king that he was not sent here to become. So Jesus separates the disciples from the people, but he does another separation. He separates himself from both. He needed time with his father. Remember, this is 24 hours. Jesus prays for us in Mark six forty-six, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Can you even imagine? Can you imagine the intimacy, the conversation, the communion between God the Father and God the Son? The book of Mark does not tell us. What it was about, but the book of Mark does tell us three specific occasions that Jesus does this very thing. It happened in chapter 1, it's happening now in chapter 6, and it will happen again in chapter 14. And each of them have something very common. We start to see the threads of a commonality about them. That they each happen in a very mission-critical moment for Jesus. They also occur in the darkest part of the night... He withdraws to a very lonely place. And Jesus leaves the prayer time with a very determined mission focus. The verse simply says he went to the mountain to pray. So it doesn't tell us what he prays. But we do know what he prays now, right? Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, say it with me, interceding for us. Who Jesus is eternally is also who Jesus was while he walked on this earth. So I am very confident That after leaving this moment, that he had to separate all from each other. That he went to that mountain and did what he does in the heavens, even right now on earth, on that mountain. Including inside of that prayer time, praying for those 5,000 plus people and these 12 disciples. And as we sit in this room, can you embrace the truth that he is interceding for you? by name right now let's keep reading mark 6 verse 47 and when the evening came the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land see how mark is separating the two emphasizing that and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea he meant to pass by them Belief statement number two is this. Write this down. Jesus sees our struggles and comes to us. Verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how united they were in rowing together, they could not defeat the wind That phrase, making headway painfully, just so we can understand the enormity of this moment, means that the headwinds were tormenting them. It wasn't an inconvenience. It was a torment that these 12 men were in together. And as the torment increased, so did their fear. But don't miss this. Are you listening? Jesus never lost sight of them. They were always on his heart. Therefore, they were always in his view. And this isn't just true for the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. This is true for you and me. You, the one who is interceding, is interceding for you. Why? Because you are always on his heart. And everything that is on his heart is always in his view. It was the darkest part of night. That fourth watch would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. It's during the mightiest of windstorms that's occurring. And they are three to four miles out in the Sea of Galilee. The Son of God has divine, perfect vision. No darkness, no storm, no circumstance will be a wall for him not to see those that he loves, his sons and his daughters. It was the same in this. So we need to understand that from Cape Canaveral Terminal Number Three, all the way to Cocoa Beach Pier, which is about three miles. Yes, I Googled it. In the mightiest of hurricanes, Jesus could see you drowning. But there's even better news. Because from his view at the right hand of the Father, he has the perfect view of you and everything that you are going through. Does it feel like you're in a boat rowing against a stronger wind than you? You're not alone. But you need to know this. Jesus knows and Jesus sees. And when he sees our struggle, he doesn't just stay on the mountain. He doesn't just stay at the right hand on his throne. He comes to us. There is one phrase inside this passage that the very first time I read it, I had never seen that phrase before, but I could not unsee it. And it started to dig itself into my heart with question upon question. And that is this phrase, Mark chapter 6, verse 48 says this. At the very end, it says, he meant to pass them by. Did you get that the first time we read through that? Did that, did that kind of go, what does that mean? Well, it is a very odd phrase. And I couldn't get over how it was also odd, but there was something familiar about it to me. And then it hit me that it was another story of Moses that was also inclusive of that phrase, passed by. Exodus chapter 33 verse 18 says this, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, Lord, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by then i will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen but there's more then i remembered it wasn't just moses it's also elijah first kings chapter 19 verse 11 And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So my question became this. Could it be that Jesus intended to pass by his disciples in places just like Moses and Elijah were in their highest places of anxiety? Could it be that he intended, he meant, to pass by and display and reveal his glory to them? Could it also be that their fear was unable to see his glory? Could it be that when Jesus comes to us in our own storm, he desires, he means to pass by, to reveal who he is So that our faith would increase and it would calm our hearts. But in that moment, fear demands something else. Fear will not be satisfied by who he is. Fear demands that he do something. Remove something. Could the greatest... This is huge that hit my heart. Could the greatest opportunity... For us to behold our Jesus face to face. The reality of his being, his character, his nature, his glory. That the opportunity for us to do that is the very opportunity for our greatest fear. I'm, I'm afraid we think of the greatest opportunity to hold his glory as in here. This is not the greatest opportunity. The greatest opportunity is when you are placed inside of a storm. And you have to choose faith or fear. That is exactly what happened with Moses on the mountain. Elijah in the cave. And the disciples on the sea. Why would it be any different? For us, but, but, but because we're so gripped by fear of a circumstance or a trial or a struggle, we can't see him. We can only see him as the one that we are afraid of instead of the one that we can trust. And that's exactly what happened with the disciples. Look at Mark 6 verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Remember, this is 24 hours. How did the disciples respond when they saw Jesus? It tells us they perceived Jesus to be something that he was not, a ghost. They cried out in fear. And they were terrified of the one who was there to save them. Let's look at fear and what it does. And every head probably is going to be nodding in just a second because we, we understand the grips of fear, all right? But let's just take a moment and then objectively see what does fear do to us. This is what fear does to us. It confuses our heart and our mind by what it sees. It cries out because of a suffocating anxiety and worry that just builds and builds and builds and expresses itself out inside of our crying. But it also does this, and we see this in the passage. It hardens the heart toward Jesus. We could also call that unbelief. Mark 6, verse 51 And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Why were their hearts hardened? Because they didn't believe. And when we don't believe, fear has a heyday with that heart. Fear loves unbelief because fear then gets to define what's real. Instead of Jesus, who is what is real, defining it. It says in that that passage, though, this is where I just love our Jesus. Because when we miss beholding him because of fear in our life, what does our compassionate good shepherd then do? When he has come inside of our storms in our life and he says, I want you, the thing that is going to alleviate every part of your fear and remove it is not me removing something. It is about me introducing something, me. But when fear is so strong in our heart, like it was in these disciples, what does he do? Here's your next belief statement. Jesus hears our fears and speaks to us. March 6, verse 50. But immediately, immediately, here's our second immediately of this passage. He spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This second immediately shows us what he does. He does not get angry when we can't behold his glory. He presses in, he doesn't pull out of us. This is what he didn't do. He didn't get angry at them at not recognizing, but instead what he did is he spoke to the fear. He spoke so that the confusion would leave. He spoke so that their cries could be calmed. He spoke so that their hard hearts would soften. Jesus speaks to us. And so just as Jesus saw the struggle and came, so too Jesus hears our fears and he speaks. And some in this room might go, I'm still waiting to hear him. Listen, he has given you his word. I would do this. He has given you his word. You too can have it on an iPad. All right? No, listen. He has given you his word. His words of life are there. But that phrase that I say often is very true. You will find who you are looking for. Look for him, you will find him. Listen for him, you will hear him. But it's not simply by his word. Because if he just gave me his word and left me to understand it, I would be sunk. He gives us his word and he gives us his spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within us so that his spirit can help us, can guide us into understanding something that our flesh will never get. He helps us. So when you're approaching God's word, and if it feels like it's simply another book on your shelf, I would ask you to first start by saying, Holy Spirit, would you help me? That's what he's there for. That's what he desires to do. Jesus speaks to us. And he doesn't leave us to drown in unbelief's fear And in this very moment, the disciples' greatest terror, he does something that is impossible. He tells them two commands. What does he tell them? Take courage and do not be afraid. Have you ever tried to make yourself filled with courage and force fear to leave you? I don't know about you, but I am zero for a million on that. All right? Jesus did not tell those disciples to commands and then keep walking, head over to the other side, cross his arms across the Sea of Galilee and watch and see, are we going to sink or are we going to swim? But isn't that how we see God often? Isn't that what we really believe he does? Isn't that when he is speaking to us and we don't like what he says? We tell him, just go to the other side and I can make it. He doesn't do that. He didn't do it to them and he doesn't do it to us. But what did he do? He spoke directly to their hearts. What did he say again? I like the way the New American Standard Version says it. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. If you take the it is I out, it becomes impossible. Because that courage there, it's in the present active tense. So what that means is to have a continual confidence. Uninterrupted, a continual, uninterrupted, firm confidence in the face of danger and testing. Not after the fact, not before the fact, but in the fact. And also be unafraid. Stop being in this perpetual 24 7 controlling state of fear. So 24 7, be courageous. 24 7, Be unafraid. And in between those two commands, to be courageous and unafraid, you find faith's reason and you find faith's source. It is I. I am here. I am that I am. Everything Jesus commands, not just those two things. Everything Jesus commands, we will fail on our own strength. He did not give us commands so that he could stand on the other side of the shore, watch us struggle, and applaud our efforts to get to the other side. Many of us see faith as that. That is not faith. Faith is only as strong as the object to whom faith is placed. It is I. I am here. I am that I am. When we believe that, that middle section, courage rises and fear flees. The last belief statement is this. Simply, Jesus is our peace. Mark chapter 6, verse 51 and 53. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. I love verse 51. You need to circle verse 51. The first phrase says what? He got in the boat with them. That's what Jesus does. He got in the boat with them. Remember how Mark wrote this in such a way that we felt the separation between Jesus and the disciples. Now they're together. Inside of the book of Mark, you see a consistent pattern that when the disciples are not with Jesus, trouble happens. But when they are with Jesus, peace happens. And this is who Jesus is. He doesn't stay on some mountain far, far, far away. Some throne high, high, high above from you. Jesus knows your heart and prays for you. Jesus sees your struggle. And comes to you. Jesus hears your fears. And speaks to you. And I'm going to add one last belief statement. Jesus gets into your boat. And is your peace. So in our storms. In our pain. In our hard season. Jesus desires To reveal himself to us. And inside that struggle, this is what I've come to treasure as I've just been swimming, pardon the pun, inside of this passage is that inside of my greatest struggle is my greatest opportunity. And what have I really asked of Jesus inside of my greatest struggle? I think all of us would say we ask him to make it go away. <laughs> Jesus did not walk on the storm having ceased it before he walked. Why? Because he's not afraid of the storm. <laughs> he creates the winds and the waves as his creation, they obey his voice. He walked in the storm to the disciples he wanted the disciples to see the both and to be able to compare and say which is stronger the winds or Jesus fear let them only see what was physically in front of them and Jesus wanted to be so much greater that and he does the same thing inside our, our lives and he did not we have to understand stop Waiting for the moment that there are no more storms. He did not promise that there would be no more storms. He promised to be peace in the promised storms. (laughs) So instead of your goal and my goal being to get out of the storm. What if it were that the goal is to invite and welcome Jesus into the boat. We have to believe this because it's true. The absence of a storm is not peace. Remember, this is not the first storm. It's not the first Sea of Galilee moment. It's not the first boat moment of these disciples. This is storm number two. And two for two, when Jesus is present, there's peace. It's the same Savior. Another storm, but the same Savior. Jesus in your boat in the midst of the storm is peace. So as we end, do you desire to be filled with courage instead of fear? I want to give you two things that you would place on your heart. And the first one is this. Behold Jesus passing by. You know the problem with the disciples in this moment? Why they didn't see him? They weren't looking for him. They were surprised by him. Not anticipating him. May we anticipate him. May we look for him. May we not give the qualification that the storm has to end before I can see you, Jesus. If we do that, that diminishes his glory to be worthy of no storms. But Moses, if you go back and read the context of Exodus 33, if you go back and read the context of Elijah's moment of beholding of God's glory passing by, it was not a church service in Merritt Island at 10.30 a.m. moment. It was in the recess of a cave. It was in the struggle of being on a mountain with rebellious people at the bottom of the mountain. Look for Jesus. Because in your storm, if you look for him, he is there. Why can I say that with such confidence? Because he promised to be. When has he not kept his promise? When? No, I'm serious. In your life, when has he not kept his promise? And even more than that, in this moment, if you were to take out your story and you would take it out and then, you know how in government documents they black out all the things and you're just kind of left with three sentences that make no sense, you know? Do y'all not watch those kind of movies? I watch those all the time. All right? What if your life was a big document and you just had to block out all the things that were hard, that were struggles, that was storms in your life? What if you just block them out as if they never occurred? What are you left with? What are you left with of knowing him in that? I would say nothing. Because faith is nothing if it's not tested. Faith is nothing if it's not proven to be true. We would have an artificial sense of what was true. God is good to do that. Because he does not allow storms that he is not going to come to us. And be able to get in our boat. And the second one is this. Hear Jesus say two things to your heart. Hear him say it in this way. Be courageous because I am here. And I am here. Therefore, do not be afraid. Do not be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we are so grateful of who you are. We're so humbled because, Lord, we know that we cannot overcome the storms of our life. And it feels like... We drown, we're drown. we drowning, but Lord, may we believe something that is greater, and that is that you are here, that you see, that you know, that you care, that you are with us, that you are wanting to pass by us, to show us who you are, that you are more than desirous to get in the boat with us. Thank you. And Lord, inside of this moment, I know that there are people with every kind of variety of story in this room. And there's some in this room that, that don't know you. It's not that they're in a storm, and as a as one of your followers, as a son or a daughter of yours, and, and the things that your word has been telling us this morning that resonates within them, and it's a wonderful reminder. Or there are some in this room that maybe have never heard that before. They've walked this life, they've gone through storms all by themselves, not knowing that you wanted to get in their boat. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you, that wouldn't recognize you, that today they would recognize you, that they would behold that you are the one that desires to be their Lord and their Savior to walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death even. Lord, to be able to to love and have a compassion on them, to hear their cries, to settle their fears, and to let faith rise to discover how and why they have truly been created, and that is to honor and glorify you. Lord, I pray today would be that day. And for those For the rest of us in this room that do know you. That we have been on the Sea of Galilee figuratively many times. And that storm has arisen many times. And with every new storm that comes, we even want to in unbelief believe that if the storms could just leave, we could love you more. We could be more obedient. But Lord, I pray that your good work of testing. And trying, not to the point of failure, because that's not what you do, but Lord, you test to prove, to prove who you are, to prove truth is truth, to prove promises are guaranteed, to prove that your presence and your word is enough. Lord, help us believe. Help us believe today. Lord, we we are so thankful that you are so good so good. So Lord, as we in this moment want to come to you, you come to us and you come to us and you come to us. But Lord, in this moment, we want to draw near to you and come to you to declare you for the glorious Lord that you are. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.